0: This past week, the Pew Research Center um, released findings uh, of a poll that they did this past year about the religious leanings in America, 2014, but they compared these findings with a similar poll that they had done in 2007, and what they discovered was that the People that used to occupy the nominal Christian center, Christianity center that was so prevalent in our nation for so long have moved one way or the other. People are either no longer interested in the Lord, they consider themselves none, not affiliated with any religion, or they are uh, moving toward Christ in a more serious manner. Uh, The pew survey found i am sort of a christian to be rapidly shrinking in our country people are polarizing going one direction or another so there is good news and bad news in that report i may have to go get the tape or i'll be going doing this all day Uh, the bad news is that those who used to be comfortable just sort of playing at christianity uh without possessing that genuine commitment to the Lord, have become much more secular in their thinking. And in commenting on the results of the survey, Ed Stetzer recalled a time, and so do you in America, many of you do, when schools, communities would not plan things on uh, Wednesday night because of church. Wednesday night, for goodness sakes. But now, Sunday morning, what's happening all over our country? soccer games other activities community events ah yes thank you yes another elder Uh, and i'd like for the rest of the elders to check make sure i don't run out of water if you want Uh, or we could have a general baptism you know i better stick to the script here that's But you think about the change in our our land. In the past, even those who didn't attend church still identified loosely with Christianity. Are you a Christian? Of course. I'm an American. And your values were their values. Or at least they didn't fight against you. They would say, that's just the way it is. Now, those on the fence find biblical morality bigoted and offensive. That's the bad news. The good news is that some who were on the fence are much more committed. Wow, gosh, I've got. Where, where should I put these? Thank you very much, Melanie. That was one of the movie stars I I, I baptized. Melanie Metro became Melanie Griffith up here in the in the baptismal pool. So. The ones who were in the middle moved away or they moved towards. And the ones who have moved toward Jesus are far more committed than they used to be. At some point they realized, as all must do in an increasingly secular society, I cannot be nominally committed to Jesus either more. Either I'm in or I'm out. And those who decided to be in are really in. Because it's no longer cool to be a Christian in America you can't say I'm a Christian and people have a neutral kind of response to that they're either really glad or they're really not and so while many have moved away from Jesus some have moved dramatically towards him if you think of the Christian faith as something you can take or leave <coughs> I think Hebrews chapter 3 which is our text today is going to seek to disabuse you of that notion. It will beg to differ. The point is not the difference between perfection and wicked. We talk about moving radically towards Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're free of the old man, that you're going to be a perfect person. But it does mean that your interest is towards him. And if you sin, you will repent and say, Lord, forgive me, and you'll move on. And you'll keep moving in this direction. Rather than just sort of playing around or moving decidedly away and say I'm okay I've been baptized one of the main differences between Catholics and Protestants you know there's there are quite a few but one of the main differences is Catholics believe that baptism is a work that in and of itself saves you of course they wouldn't do it in that they would sprinkle but they believe that if you are baptized the, the, the Latin phrase, and if there are Latin scholars, you might help me with the pronunciation. It's either ex opera operata or ex opera, opera operata, which means by the work accomplished. In other words, just by the fact that you're baptized. So if you ask a Catholic, are you going to heaven? He or she may very well say, oh yeah, I'm okay. I've been baptized. There is no Protestant who believes that baptism in and of itself saves a person. Even if, even if Protestants believe, some Protestants believe that baptism is a necessary component of salvation. They don't believe that the baptism saves you apart from faith. It has to be connected with faith. So what you believe is every, it's the most important thing about your relationship with Christ. In baptism, in communion, we commune with Jesus. We say that we're nourished at the table. And that we are united with him in baptism. But when we believe we are in Christ, these others are helps for our salvation. And they identify us as followers of Jesus Christ. So the point is not whether we're perfect or not, we're not. We recognize that. But we also recognize that a life that is committed to Christ is going to look different from other lives. It's not that we don't stumble, but we get up with the help of the Lord, with the Holy Spirit, and we keep moving in that direction. And if you look or sound or feel nothing like a Christian, then Hebrews 3 is written to you, and it says, let me warn you about the condition of your soul. Don't take this thing lightly. The title of the message comes directly from the first verse of our text. Consider Jesus. And as I've already said, our text is the entire chapter of Hebrews 3. So if you would, as is our custom, please stand for the reading of the word. And I thought about letting you remain seated since it's such a long text. (coughs) But in honor of the word we stand. Which doesn't mean we don't honor if we do remain seated. You, You understand what I'm saying. And I just want to make one comment about this first verse and then I'll move through. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the only time in the New Testament apostle is used in association with Jesus. It just simply means sent one. He is the sent one from God. And and it's all a part of the author's argument. God sent Moses... God sent Jesus, the Father sent the Son, but the Son is far superior, we're going to see over and over. So, consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was pointing towards something. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and I saw and saw my works. They put me to the test even though they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? Whose bodies fell in the wilderness. It's the same guy that was so encouraging in the text last week. Who was it? It was those whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter. Because of unbelief. Father. This is a hard word. It's a hard word from from start to end. It is a particularly hard word to end on. And yet, it's right where you leave us on this day. Your word puts us in so many directions. Encouraging, exhorting, correcting, praising. Uh, Lord, we are to exhort one another, comfort one another. uh, provoke one another to good works and to fight against sin and your word gives us the directions on how to do that so lord open our hearts this day and encourage us from your word in jesus name amen thank you and be seated i don't know if you can see this it's bigger on your screen than mine Near the beginning of our church history class, Carla Diaz came across this uh, photo in which a professor is chatting with a student and he says, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, yet those who do know history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it. Um, (laughs) You don't know whether to laugh or to cry when you see something like that because you know how true it is. One of my all-time favorite reads is is the first book in Winston Churchill's six-volume set of his memoirs of World War II. That first volume is called The Gathering Storm. And he talks about his years in the wilderness in the 1930s when he alone, almost alone, stood and said, there's trouble brewing across the, the, the waters in Germany. We have to do something about this now. If we don't do something now, it's going to bite us later. And it was almost too late when Great Britain understood the danger. Fortunately, there are no such geopolitical concerns today. Today's text is saying this very thing. There's something in the past that you need to give attention to you're on the verge of making a big mistake and let me tell you something that happened in the past that will help you if you will learn from it the end of hebrews 3 is the second of five warning passages in this sermon written most likely to a little house church in rome consisting mostly if not entirely of jewish believers I talked a little bit about these warning passages when we got into chapter 2. And I'm going to spend more time, especially spend more time when we get to chapter 6. That's the, uh, the, the, the the most difficult of all the warning passages. And one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. So we're going to be forced to talk about the meaning of it. These five times in Hebrews, the author tells his readers. And, and did you not catch some of this when we were Reading through just now. If you walk away from Jesus, you lose all hope of eternal life. You will never see the promised land. You cannot be justified (coughs) by the law. That's the whole point of Hebrews. You can't be justified by the law. Salvation is not Jesus plus the law or the law plus Jesus. Salvation is Jesus or it's nothing. So the big question becomes with all of these warning passages... Are are they written to genuine believers who are in danger of throwing away what they already have? Or are they written to those who are infatuated with Jesus but they don't quite make it all the way? Well, remember, Scripture doesn't ask the questions that we ask. It It doesn't ask them in the same way that we ask them. So it doesn't give us the answer in exactly the same way that we would like them sometimes. But know this. Just we will, as we approach all of these warning passages, we're going to assume, as all of the New Testament teaches, that if you belong to Jesus, if you have been saved, you will live with Him eternally in heaven. Nonetheless, these warnings are a help to us, it's a means of grace, just like baptism, communion, reading scripture, prayer, exhorting one another, memorizing scripture. Daily devotions, all these are a means of grace. These are ways in which God helps you in your Christian life. And one of the ways that he helps you is to say this. Don't walk away because if you walk away, you'll be just like the Israelites who died in unbelief. And they didn't enter the rest of God. So don't try to diminish the impact of the warning by saying, oh, hey, once saved, always saved. I believe that. I don't like that phrase, once saved, always saved. I do believe What it implies, that if you were truly saved, you will always be saved. But Hebrews, of all the books in it, really all of the New Testament is this way. Don't mess around with this. Don't play with it. Your eternal destiny is at stake. It's serious business. So are you thoroughly confused? I hope you understand what I'm saying. I believe in it, but look, God gives it this way. So that we might take it seriously. And he's telling us, as we'll see all through here, it's not about straighten your act up, it's believe. If you believe, you'll straighten your act up. But if you straighten your act up, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll believe. So, as you can imagine, we could spend a whole lot more than one Sunday in Hebrews 3. So, let's get started. First, three things just gonna point out and then draw application, kind of the pattern these last couple of weeks. Make some points and then draw application from it. First Jesus is superior to Moses. That's the point of the first fi- first six verses. I mean up to this point the author has said that Jesus is superior to angels and in so saying that he was saying that they were superior uh, Jesus is superior to angels who were mediators of the law. In other words they heard from God what the law was and they told it to Moses. Again we've we covered this before, but just in review, or if you're brand new, God told Moses some things directly, but there we realize also from Deuteronomy that God used the angels to mediate his law. And so more than anything, the writer is saying Jesus is superior to the law. We'll discuss that in a little more detail in a moment, <clears throat> but... Truly, as David said this morning in leading us in worship, he's superior to angels. He's superior to the work that they did, which is the the bringing of the law to Moses who gave it to us. Uh, So now, Jesus is said to be superior to Moses. And and the big deal about that is, see, we're a long way removed (coughs) from the first century. (coughs) But we're not a long way removed from the issues that are created in our minds by the beliefs of the people in that day. And in that day, many Jews believed that Moses was uh, the best and most important person who had ever lived. And my goodness, we could make a case for that today if we wanted to. I mean, just think of the law of Moses. It's the basis for morality all over the world, whether people acknowledge it or not. They say things and we say, you know where you got that from? From that, That's in scripture. Well, I just believe. Yeah, you know why you believe it? Because this is God's word. And this is what you've heard from a lot of pieces. People, Moses was a great man. He was and is a big deal. And it's not that just that Jesus is the bigger deal. He is the deal. Moses was great. Jesus is superior. Moses was a man. Jesus is God. My goodness, if you understand what the writer is saying, it's everywhere in Hebrews. He is pointing to the divinity of Christ over and over. Moses was a faithful servant. Jesus is over the household of God. Moses was like a great house. Jesus is the builder of the house. In other words, Moses was a creature. Jesus is creator. Moses was a prophet. Jesus was the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. When he said a prophet will come who is like me. God's going to send him. And people were looking for the, the prophet. They were also looking for the king. The Messiah. Hebrews tells us both of those things. And it also tells us that he was high priest. In Hebrews 1. Jesus has been established as, as high priest. Two or three times we've seen he, or excuse me, as king. He is the Messiah, the king of David who would rule. Two or three times we've seen he's high priest, and now the writer is saying he is the prophet, prophet, priest, and king. That's who Jesus is. Notice that the author is saying good things about Moses. He wasn't saying, Moses bad, Jesus good. He wasn't saying that at all. What he was saying is, Moses is good, Jesus is better. Jesus' name was used for the first time in Hebrews 2.9. And now, for the first time in verse 6 of chapter 3, we see his title, Christ, being used. The Jews would have understood that to equate with Messiah. So you could just say, but Messiah is faithful over God's son as, God's house as a son. And, and by saying he is a son, he's saying he's the son of God. So Messiah is more than you anticipated. He wasn't in some obscure way divine. He was the son of the living father. That's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus is the believers in the little house church were wondering, it was Jesus really, all that? And the writer saying, oh yeah, your your faith is not misplaced. Your confidence, your confession of hope is not misplaced. Jesus is exactly who he said he was and exactly who the, the, the apostles have told us he was. Jesus was, Jesus is God. And for them or us, 2,000 years later, to put faith in Jesus continues a way of salvation for God's covenant people all through history. It's believe the promises of God. That's what you have to do to become a child of God. The Old Testament saints were not saved because they kept the law. They were saved because they believed God. They believed his promises as he told them. The New Testament saints are are, are, our saints because we believe in Jesus the object of our faith, the object of our belief changed after the burial, uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we are saved the same way that we always were. That's the focus of the second point. God's requirement for salvation is now the same. I jumped around there, Dale. I'm sorry. Go to the next one if you would. God's requirement for salvation is the same now as it has always been. Faith in the promises of God. And all of this plays into the biblical principles of interpretation that we've been talking about, and, find them, and they find their place yet again in Hebrews 3. The Bible is not two stories. It's one story with two parts. And the second part is better than the first part. Law, gospel, it's everywhere in Scripture. God determined that we need both. The gospel can only be understood in light of the law, and the law is powerless to do anything about our sinful condition. Thus, we need the gospel. So, there's law and gospel, and the law says, reach this standard, which of course no one can reach. If you want to be made right with God, you better hit to here. We can't, you know, we, it's just we, we, we've got no hope of reaching that standard. So, God made a way for us to be able to. And in some ways, the gospel is meaningless without the law because we don't even know we need a Savior until the law tells us we can't ever do what God expects of us. But the law in and of itself has no power whatsoever to do us any good. All it can do is say, this is the way it is, and if you fail, you're condemned. So the gospel says, but there's hope in Jesus and what had happened in, in this little house church, they used to be believe the law was the way to, to get to God. Even though the Old Testament on several occasions said it's not about your obedience as much as it is your heart, your faith. Your faith will create the right obedience, but just because you follow the letter of the law as best you can doesn't mean that you believe in God, and that's the way He is designed for us To get to him. So. They had said. No it's not the law. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. But over time. Life got hard for Christians. Just like it's happening in our day. And so they said. Ah. You know maybe Jesus is is the Messiah. But it's not all about Jesus. Let's go back to the law over here. And we'll just keep our, our worship of Jesus secret. And the writer saying you can't do that either. You're in or you're out. So, um, in Hebrews 10, our author is going to quote. Paul quoted Genesis in Romans and Galatians. Abraham believed God, and it was counted. uh, He was counted righteous because of his faith. Well, he certainly did say that in Romans. I'm not sure about Galatians. But Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted not not only in Hebrews 10, as we will get to, but also in Romans and Galatians. The just shall live, or the righteous shall live by his faith. Many authors consider Habakkuk 2.4 to be the central verse of all Scripture. The righteous one will live by his faith, and it was written after God had pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel. And He also was saying to Habakkuk, "This is how you're to live when life gets really hard because of your faith in Me." The righteous one will live according to his faith. So, um, the, the 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 biblical. Principle of biblical interpretation that the Bible is not two stories but it's one story with two parts is very much in play in Hebrews but also another uh, principle of biblical interpretation that comes into play in Hebrews 3 is that the New Testament is essentially the Old Testament written in the light of the cross. Another way of stating this is that the New Testament is an expository sermon based on the Old Testament and this is quite apparent. In our text, as the author begins this second major warning. He says, now I'm going I'm to tell you something from the Old Testament. And then he's going to make, <clears throat> he's going to preach a sermon from what he, he, he quotes in Psalm 95 verses 7 to 11. We're going to read from Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. Which is just essentially quoting uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, by the way, just quickly, the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in verse 6. The Father and Son are mentioned. This Trinitarian connection is all over the New Testament if you're looking for it. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and I saw my and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked, the Lord says, with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you look at the words that are highlighted here in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, you're going to find them again in verses 12 through 19. The writer crafts a sermon for today or that day, which is good for our day as well, based on what had been written a thousand years earlier. So uh, you're going to connect some of those dots in home group this week. What are the consequences, God says, for unbelief? Die in sin Apart from God's eternal rest. And the focus of our last point is going to lead to a strong word for us. It's a a challenge but it's also an encouragement. The covenant people of God are called to exhort one another to believe. The author of Hebrews used every means available to him. uh, To encourage the weak and fearful members of the little church in Rome. In fact later in chapter 4. We'll get to it in the next week or two. He's going to say, look, you know, I said all of those things about dying in unbelief in the wilderness and never entering the rest, but we have I have more confidence in you than that. I know you're going to do it. I know you can do this because you're focusing on Jesus. So he's using any means available. He's, he's challenging them. He's, he's rebuking them, and then he's encouraging them all over the place he is trying to Get them to hold on to their profession of faith in Christ. These people were worried about the Roman government. And you know what the writer said? Same thing Jesus said. You better fear God more than man. What did Jesus say? Don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body. Be afraid of the one who can not only kill the body... But cast body and soul into hell. Who is that? God. You know one of those things that you, some of you probably say. I used to say it. Don't say it. God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves. It, God cast people into hell. This is a hard word we're reading in Hebrews. And this is one of those things that separates the men from the boys, as we say, and the women from the little girls. What we're willing to say, we believe. What, do you believe what Scripture says? It's, it's, it's not going to be easy for you. If you say, yes, I believe in a literal hell and I believe God sends people there. No, I do not believe that same-sex marriage is acceptable in God's eyes. Yes, I believe the only way to heaven is through Jesus. Now you won't say it like that. You'll say it with a broken heart and compassion for the person you're talking to. But you know what they're going to hear? That's what they're going to hear. Are you in? Or out? You better fear God more than you do man. And you cannot let The culture determine your beliefs. If you do, you know what you are? You're a nominal Christian at best. And you're not going to stay there long. Because it's going to be too hard. You're going to move away from Jesus. It's not an easy word. These guys were worried about the Roman government. But they were told you better be more worried about God. Who made provision for your sin? Through Jesus. Most of the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt fell in the wilderness before ever reaching the land that God had promised them. Why? Unbelief and unbelief in the face of danger. Do you remember the specific instance that cost them everything? It cost them everything. They wandered around for a couple of years and then God said, okay, you're ready to go in. And they were at Kadesh Barnea. And they sent 12 spies into the land. And they came back and 10 of the 12 said... They all said, oh, it's a great land flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful land, this place that God has decided to give us. But then 10 of them said, but... There are people in the land in whose eyes we looked as grasshoppers. We are not able to overcome them. And then the people are like, oh, why didn't you bring us out here, Moses, to die? Why would that we had stayed in Egypt? By the way, there is security even in slavery for a lot of people. And these guys said... Why didn't we just stay in Egypt and Joshua and Caleb are saying, No, wait, wait, no, no. God has promised we are more than able to do that. We must believe God. He will deliver them into our hands. And they said, No, no, we won't. And God said, That's it. And by the way, I won't bring it up later. Maybe I will. But we never know when that moment's coming. When God says that's it. We think we've got all the time in the world. But the emphasis in our text on today. Ought to speak to us. We'll address it. But not those words specifically. So God said that's it. And the message. Is the same To us, as it was to the Hebrew church, as it was to the people in the wilderness, you need to fear God more than man. And that's what he was telling them. You need to believe God even in the face of danger and or temptation that will move you away from God. Away from Jesus. Verses 12 to 13. Take care of Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. We're to exhort one another every day. Well, let's not get fanatical. Yes, get fanatical about it. We're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what do you see in this text? Just look at it for a moment. What do you see? This word is addressed to a covenant community. Community that is family. Take care, brothers. But you remember in the parables of the kingdom where Jesus is saying... In the kingdom, the wheat and the tares will grow together. And you can't just go in and just rip out the tares. God will take care of that because we don't know sometimes what's wheat, what's tares, what's briars. And so at the end of the age, in the judgment, God will do the separating. So it was very likely, and in this community, just like it is in every church, almost every congregation, Believers and unbelievers. So the charge was to exhort one another daily to help each other avoid being trapped by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice everyone in the community is charged with exhorting everybody else or the others. It's not strictly up to the leaders. Exhort comes from the Greek word parakaleo. That name, does that Greek word sound familiar? It's Paraclete, the, the, the Holy Spirit, the word that's used for the Holy Spirit a lot, helper, encourager, comforter, convictor. Has a broad range of meaning and includes warning and reproof as well as encouragement and comfort. Look, church discipline is not specifically stated here, but it is in that direction very much by the use of this word alone. And we're gonna talk about it in home group. This week, I had planned to talk about it here, but not enough time. You will talk about it in home group. And guess who's responsible for church discipline? The pastor? No. The elders? No. The entire congregation? We have a call to exhort one another, and sometimes in extreme cases. That's extreme cases. There's a process to be followed and in the extreme we agree as a body. We cannot any longer put confidence in this person's profession of faith in Christ. And so we agree as a congregation to withhold communion. Where is that coming from? We talked about it in 1 Corinthians 5. Look, it's one of those things that's happening with the separation in the day. We are called to be serious. So you mean if that, no. What we mean if there is unrepentant sin that has been addressed time and again pleading and begging. Please let us help you with this. Don't do this. And it's refused the congregation as a whole. It's that serious. You'll have your chance to have your say in home group this week. But make sure if you oppose it that you've got biblical grounds for it. Because there's a lot of biblical grounds for. Or you make sure you have a biblical grounds for opposing church discipline. Because we're called to do it. We're not doing it yet. But we're moving in that direction. We have to. Our call is every day. For every one of us to exhort one another to avoid the deceitfulness of sin. And by the way, you know what church discipline is? It's a means of grace. It's a way to help us remember we are accountable to God for our faith and the actions that give evidence, according to James, to our faith. So here are a few ways that sin deceives us, along with some of the remedies that Scripture provides. First, we're deceived when we trust in our salvation. We trust in our own works for salvation. Again, that's the focus of Hebrews. More than anything else, that's why the writer is writing. Satan is a deceiver, and he loves to whisper in our ears that if we want to be accepted to God, we better be get busy about doing good works. And, and good works ought to identify a believer. It ought to give evidence to the things that we say absolutely but when we do that so that we can be saved then we've missed the point that's when the 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 one sin above all that will keep us from heaven is in play in our lives when we say I just have to be good enough when you hear someone say well I I just need to do the best I can, and and, and I'm just hoping everything's gonna be all right with God when I see him. Or I think I think I'm gonna be all right when I get to heaven. I think he'll look at my life and he'll say, Yeah, you've been pretty good. When you hear someone say that, you need to point him or her to the cross. In fact, the remedy for a reliance on self for salvation is to consider Jesus on the cross. Why did Jesus die? To offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. How presumptuous is it to think that we can be good enough? Look at the cross and don't let your gaze drift. Lest you be deceived into thinking that God's grace means that you can sin without consequence. When he saved us, when he raised us from the dead. So that we might walk in newness of life when we're identified with Christ Christ through baptism, through our faith in Him, we are called to walk in a different way than we did before. In fact, if you give assent to the gospel without being saturated by the gospel, then you're likely to become subject to a mindset of sin today, repent tomorrow. Did you notice how often the word today is in our text? Over and over we're told that life is not to be taken for granted. Yet, how many times do we think, I'm going to start the diet tomorrow? Tomorrow has been on my calendar most of this year. Tomorrow, I'm going to play with this sin just a little bit more. This is the last time I will see him or her, who who is not my spouse, but I will see him or her one more time. And I'm going to cut it off. One more day and I'm going to give up this thing that's so important. Tomorrow never comes though when we think like that. But guess what? God's today does come. And he urges us to respond to him now. What is the remedy for a plan to repent later? Heed the lessons of the past. Hebrews 3 reminds us of Psalm 95, which reminds us of Numbers 13 and 14. The Israelites refused to believe God's promise that he would bring them into the land, that he would defeat the Canaanites. Although, you know what happens in war? Some people die. It just happens. And they were apparently not willing for anybody to die. They refused to fight and God pronounced judgment. They repented of their unbelief. God showed himself to them. And they said, oh, we have sinned. We'll go, we'll go. And Moses, the Lord told Moses, tell them, no, it's too late. And they said, no, no, we'll go. And they went, and of course it was too late and disaster. And so they wandered around in the wilderness for the next 38 years, 40 total from the time they came out of Egypt and Hebrews tells us graphically that their bodies fell in the wilderness because of unbelief unbelief is at the root of all sin isn't it I mean the very first thing with which Satan tempted Adam and Eve was to question God's promise of judgment against sin God really God said that if you eat of that tree You'll die, but they ate. And I'm sure Satan's over there saying, see, you didn't die, but they're saying, oh, no, they recognized. Good and evil. Sin today, repent tomorrow is no way to live your life. And if you're living that way, I'm going to say, yes, we have a gracious God and none of us is perfect and there are some sins that get a hold of us and they just won't let us go and you won't desperately and that's not what I'm talking about although it is what scripture is talking about. We just don't know when God says enough is enough. And he says it seriously in the New Testament. Some of you were sick, some are dead because of your sin. And when we talked about Church discipline several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his soul might be saved in the day of judgment. This guy was saved, but God said, Enough is enough. You live for me. But there's a limit to our sin, even though God is gracious and we're called to heed the lessons of the past. One of the ways that sin deceived the Israelites in the wilderness and the little church members at Rome was through self-pity. The Israelites, even after being miraculously delivered from mighty Egypt, complained bitterly and repeatedly about their circumstances. Moses, why did you? We had plenty to eat. We were secure. Now we're going to die in this wilderness. They forgot about the harsh slavery and about God's redemption. And they felt sorry for themselves. I wonder if this is not the primary reason people leave churches. Self-pity. Look, if you think I'm preaching at you, where do you think this list came from? I, I have a really intimate knowledge of myself. Most of the time, our suspicions of others are based on an intimate knowledge of ourselves. I know what you're thinking, Jack Lucas. Yeah, that's because I would be thinking that if I were in Jack's shoes. But think about it. We feel sorry for ourselves. I've been mistreated. I've been misunderstood. It's a sin that will deceive us and destroy us. Almost all of us are given either to self-pity or to pride that we are not given to self-pity. Like Tim Keller says, I can't preach, I can't pray without sinning. I mean, look, it's just, it's part of the fallen world. And God is so wonderful and beautiful in spite of us to bring us into his family and to love us through our mess. I know how easily it is to be hurt by careless words or, 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 or worse, by intentional slights or power moves. But self-pity and walking away from Jesus is a serious mistake. What's the remedy? A spirit of gratitude. What, what, what difference would it make in our lives? What a difference it would make in our lives if we began our day with words of praise on our lips. Sarah was going to the hospital the other day with little Jesse, and I was talking to her on the phone. And I was moving in this direction, and then David called, and she had to take that call and wasn't able to get back to me. But can you just imagine what the Calverts have gone through? Maybe it's minor in the the light of some people's struggles. I want to tell you, whatever your struggle is, it's major. And you don't want the struggle that they have with their precious little child. Having these stomach issues. And Sarah's on her way. And I was just thinking about this message and this point, And I just wanted to say, Sarah, can, let me just encourage you. And what a spirit she had. It was a great spirit. I was talking to her. But I just wanted to encourage her to sing songs of praise on the way to take Jesse when it was so hard God calls us to praise Him as a spiritual discipline. He doesn't say it in those words, but that's a a means of grace. Our praising Him. A spirit of gratitude is a key component of inner peace, according to Philippians 4. And a lack of gratitude, according to Romans 1, can put us on a road that leads to all kinds of sin. So instead of, God, why did you just say, God, thank you that you're God? We don't thank God for sometimes the circumstances that happen to us, but we thank Him in the circumstances always. That's what we're called to do in 1 Thessalonians 5. And as we praise Him and acknowledge that He is sovereign and that He is good, it changes our spirits. Make gratitude a spiritual discipline. It's a way... Well, acknowledgement of God's holiness is the way the Lord's prayer starts. And thank Him for everything that He does for us. You're going to need it in this day in which you are increasingly marginalized. And when you become an object of suspicion in our society, which leads to the last sin on our list, though it's far from the last sin that's going to harden your heart toward the gospel. Fear of being labeled a fanatic. If you're going to follow Jesus in the 21st century in America. You're going to be considered a fanatic. May as well get used to it. Not many years ago people thought that you were a lunatic. If you talked about coming persecution in America. Not many people think that you're so crazy anymore. And I hope it turns around. I do. I so hope it turns around. I hope God is merciful to us and to our nation. As we turn to him. In larger numbers than we are now. But the chances are that the gospel is moving from our land. And those of us who believe the gospel are called to proclaim it. And we proclaim it because we believe it. We really, really believe this. And if we do, then we have to stand with the Lord. No matter what people think about us. It's one thing to serve the Lord, even when uh, when even those who don't agree with you respect you and and give you honor in some way, and they share the basic moral principles that you have. (coughs) But what about the day when you are considered a danger to society? And I don't know if you if you watch the news, but that's what you're being called if you believe the word, a danger. To society. How will you respond when being labeled a fanatic holds far greater consequences than being just considered someone who has taken religion too far? What will you do then? Better make up your mind. Today. The remedy for timidity? Consider Jesus on the cross. Hebrews 3 begins with an admonition to consider Jesus and by implication consider His suffering. Hebrews 3 ends with a strong warning against unbelief. Even if, even in the face of suffering that may come only because you believe Jesus. If you just would give up this notion, this nonsense about following Jesus, you're not in danger, not in immediate danger, the world will say. But don't be tempted to compromise your beliefs. You have a higher authority to whom you must give account. Keep your hearts and minds Fixed on Jesus. Every day, exalt one another and believe God's promises wrapped up in him. Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, it's a hard thing. To follow you no matter what. Thank you for giving us hearts. That could do no other. That could do nothing else. And for those who are thinking about. Walking away because of the persecution. That is beginning to, to build. Not like it is in many places. But we see it on the horizons. Those who are thinking about walking away. For a momentary pleasure those who have somehow convinced themselves this is not true love. And I can just play with my commitment. Lord, call us to Jesus. Call us to consider Him. Give us the strength. Give us the the courage. And give us the commitment to exhort one another daily as long as it is called today need you we love you we thank you for your word that is hard sometimes i far prefer the encouraging, soft arm around you kind of comfort that scripture provides and there's a lot of it there sometimes i need a hard word a sharp word you knew that and you put it there may i respond as you have called me to in jesus name amen would you please stand